introduction to the condition of the working class in england in eighteen forty four this librivox recording is in the public domain the condition of the working class in england in eighteen forty four by friedrich engels introduction the history of the proletariat in england begins with the second half of the last century with the invention of the steam-engine and of machinery for working cotton these conventions gave rise as is well known to an industrial revolution a revolution which altered the whole civil society one the historical importance of which is only now beginning to be recognized england is the classic soil of this transformation which was all the mightier the more silently it proceeded and england is therefore the classic land of its chief product also the proletariat only in england can the proletariat be studied in all its relations and from all sides we have not here and now to deal with the history of this revolution nor with its vast importance for the present and the future such a delineation must be reserved for a future more comprehensive work for the moment we must limit ourselves to the little that is necessary for understanding the facts that follow for comprehending the present state of the english proletariat before the introduction of machinery the spinning and weaving of raw materials was carried on in the working-man's home wife and daughter spun the yarn that the father wove or that they sold if he did not work it up himself these weaver families lived in the country in the neighbourhood of the towns and could get on fairly well with their wages because the home market was almost the only one and the crushing power of competition that came later with the conquest of foreign markets and the extension of trade did not yet press upon wages there was further a constant increase in the demand for the home market keeping pace with the slow increase in population and employing all the workers and there was also the impossibility of vigorous competition of the workers among themselves consequent upon the rural dispersion of their homes so it was that the weaver was usually in a position to lay by something and rent a little piece of land that he cultivated in his leisure hours of which he had as many as he chose to take since he could weave whenever and as long as he pleased true he was a bad farmer and managed his land inefficiently often obtaining but poor crops nevertheless he was no proletarian yet a stake in the country he was permanently settled and stood one step higher in society than the english workmen of to-day so the workers vegetated throughout a passably comfortable existence leading a righteous and peaceful life in all piety and probity and their material position was far better than that of their successors they did not need to overwork they did no more than they chose to do and yet earned what they needed they had leisure for healthful work in garden or field work which in itself was recreation for them and they could take part besides in the recreations and games of their neighbours and all these games bowling cricket football etc contributed to their physical health and vigour they were for the most part strong well-built people in whose physique little or no difference from that of their peasant neighbours was discoverable their children grew up in the fresh country air and if they could help their parents at work it was only occasionally while of eight or twelve hours work for them there was no question what the moral and intellectual character of this class was may be guessed shut off from the towns which they never entered their yarn and woven stuff being delivered to travelling agents for payment of wages so shut off that old people who lived quite in the neighbourhood of the town never went thither until they were robbed of their trade by the introduction of machinery and obliged to look about them in the towns for work the weavers stood upon the moral and intellectual plane of the yeomen with whom they were usually immediately connected through their little holdings they regarded their squire 
the greatest landholder of the region, as their natural superior. They asked advice of him, laid their small disputes before him for settlement, and gave him all the honour, as this patriarchal relation involved. They were respectable people, good husbands and fathers, led moral lives because they had no temptation to be immoral, there being no groggeries or low-houses in their vicinity, and because the host, at whose inn they now and then quenched their thirst, was also a respectable man, usually a large tenant-farmer who took pride in his good order, good beer, and early hours. They had their children the whole day at home, and brought them up in obedience and the fear of God. The patriarchal relationship remained undisturbed so long as the children were unmarried. The young people grew up in idyllic simplicity and intimacy with their playmates until they married and even though sexual intercourse before marriage almost unfailingly took place, this happened only when the moral obligation of marriage was recognized on both sides, and a subsequent wedding made everything good. In short, the English industrial workers of those days lived and thought after the fashion still to be found here and there in Germany, in retirement and seclusion, without mental activity and without violent fluctuations in their position in life. They could rarely read, and far more rarely write went regularly to church, never talked politics, never conspired, never thought, delighted in physical exercises, listened with inherited reverence when the Bible was read, and were, in their unquestioning humility, exceedingly well disposed towards the superior classes. But intellectually they were dead, lived only for their petty, private interest, for their looms and gardens, and knew nothing of the mighty movement which, beyond their horizon, was sweeping through mankind." They were comfortable in their silent vegetation, and but for the industrial revolution they would never have emerged from this existence, which, cosily romantic as it was, was nevertheless not worthy of human beings. In truth, they were not human beings. They were merely toiling machines in the service of the few aristocrats who had guided history down to that time. The industrial revolution has simply carried this out to its logical end by making the workers machines pure and simple taking from them the last trace of independent activity, and so forcing them to think and demand a position worthy of men. As in France politics, so in England manufacture, and the movement of civil society in general drew into the whirl of history the last classes which had remained sunk in apathetic indifference to the universal interests of mankind. The first invention which gave rise to a radical change in the state of the English workers was the jenny, invented in the year 1764 by a weaver, James Hargraves, of Standhill, near Blackburn, in North Lancashire. This machine was the rough beginning of the later invented mule, and was moved by hand. Instead of one spindle like the ordinary spinning-wheel, it carried sixteen or eighteen manipulated by a single workman. This invention made it possible to deliver more yarn than heretofore. Whereas, though one weaver had employed three spinners, there had never been enough yarn, and the weaver had often been obliged to wait for it, there was now more yarn to be had than could be woven by the available workers. The demand for woven goods, already increasing, rose yet more in consequence of the cheapness of these goods, which cheapness in turn was the outcome of the diminished cost of producing the yarn. More weavers were needed, and weavers' wages rose. Now that the weaver could earn more at his loom, he gradually abandoned his farming, and gave his whole time to weaving. At that time a family of four grown persons and two children, who were set to spooling, could earn, with eight hours' daily work, four pounds sterling in a week, and often more if trade was good and work pressed. It happened often enough that a single weaver earned two pounds a week at his loom. By degrees the class of farming weavers wholly disappeared 
and was merged in the newly arising class of weavers who lived wholly upon wages, had no property whatever, not even the pretended property of a holding, and so became working-men, proletarians. Moreover, the old relation between spinner and weaver was destroyed. Hitherto, so far as this had been possible, yarn had been spun and woven under one roof. Now that the jenny as well as the loom required a strong hand, men began to spin, and whole families lived by spinning, while others laid the antiquated, superseded spinning-wheel aside, and if they had not means of purchasing a jenny, were forced to live upon the wages of the father alone. Thus began with spinning and weaving that division of labour which has since been so infinitely perfected. While the industrial proletariat was thus developing with the first still very imperfect machine, the same machine gave rise to the agricultural proletariat. There had hitherto been a vast number of small landowners, yeomen, who had vegetated in the same unthinking quiet as their neighbours, the farming-weavers. They cultivated their scraps of land quite after the ancient and inefficient fashion of their ancestors, and opposed every change with the obstinacy peculiar to such creatures of habit, after remaining stationary from generation to generation. Among them were many small holders also, not tenants in the present sense of the word, but people who had their land handed down from their fathers, either by hereditary lease or by force of ancient custom, and had hitherto held it as securely as if it had actually been their own property. When the industrial workers withdrew from agriculture, a great number of small holdings fell idle, and upon these the new class of large tenants established themselves, tenants at will, holding fifty, one hundred, two hundred or more acres, liable to be turned out at the end of the year, but able by improved tillage and larger farming to increase the yield of the land. They could sell their produce more cheaply than the yeoman, for whom nothing remained when his farm no longer supported him but to sell it, procure a jenny or a loom, or take service as an agricultural labourer in the employ of a large farmer. His inherited slowness and the inefficient methods of cultivation bequeathed by his ancestors, and above which he could not rise, left him no alternative when forced to compete with men who managed their holdings on sounder principles, and with all the advantages bestowed by farming on a large scale, and the investment of capital for the improvement of the soil. Meanwhile the industrial movement did not stop here. Single capitalists began to set up spinning-jennies in great buildings, and to use water-power for driving them, so placing themselves in a position to diminish the number of workers, and sell their yarn more cheaply than single-spinners could do who moved their own machines by hand. There were constant improvements in the jenny, so that machines continually became antiquated, and must be altered or even laid aside. And though the capitalists could hold out by the application of water-power, even with the old machinery, for the single-spinner this was impossible. And the factory system, the beginning of which was thus made, received a fresh extension in 1767 through the spinning throstle invented by Richard Arkwright, a barber, in Preston, in North Lancashire. After the steam-engine, this is the most important mechanical invention of the eighteenth century. It was calculated from the beginning for mechanical motive-power, and was based upon wholly new principles. By the combination of the peculiarities of the jenny and throstle, Samuel Crompton, of Firwood, Lancashire, contrived the mule in 1785, and as Arkwright invented the carding-engine, and preparatory, that is, slubbing and roving frames about the same time, the factory system became the prevailing one for the spinning of cotton. By means of trifling modifications, these machines were gradually adapted to the spinning of flax, and so to the superseding of handwork here, too. But even then the end was not yet. In the closing years of the last century Dr. Cartwright, a country parson, had invented the power-loom, 
and about 1804 had so far perfected it that it could successfully compete with the hand-weaver. And all this machinery was made doubly important by James Watt's steam-engine, invented in 1764, and used for supplying motive-power for spinning since 1785. With these inventions, since improved from year to year, the victory of machine-work over hand-work in the chief branches of English industry was won, and the history of the latter from that time forward simply relates how the hand-workers have been driven by machinery from one position after another. The consequences of this were, on the one hand, a rapid fall in price of all manufactured commodities, prosperity of commerce and manufacture, the conquest of nearly all the unprotected foreign markets, the sudden multiplication of capital and national wealth. On the other hand, a still more rapid multiplication of the proletariat, the destruction of all property-holding and of all security of employment for the working class, demoralization, political excitement, and all those facts so highly repugnant to Englishmen in comfortable circumstances, which we shall have to consider in the following pages. Having already seen what a transformation in the social condition of the lower classes a single such clumsy machine as the Jenny had wrought, there is no cause for surprise as to that which a complete and interdependent system of finely adjusted machinery has brought about, machinery which receives raw material and turns out woven goods. Meanwhile, let us trace the development of English manufacture somewhat more minutely, beginning with the cotton industry. In the years 1771 to 1775, there were annually imported into England rather less than five million pounds of raw cotton. In the year 1841, there were imported 528 million pounds, and the import for 1844 will reach at least 600 million pounds. In 1844, England exported 556 million yards of woven cotton goods, 76,500,000 pounds of cotton yarn, and cotton hosiery of the value of 1,200,000 pounds. In the same year, over 8 million mule spindles were at work, 110,000 power and 250,000 handlooms, throstle spindles not included, in the service of the cotton industry and, according to McCulloch's reckoning, nearly a million and a half human beings were supported by this branch, of whom but 220,000 worked in the mills. The power used in these mills was steam, equivalent to 33,000 horsepower, and water, equivalent to 11,000 horsepower. At present, these figures are far from adequate, and it may be safely assumed that, in the year 1845, the power and number of the machines and the number of the workers is greater by one-half than it was in 1834. The chief centre of this industry is Lancashire, where it originated. It has thoroughly revolutionised this county, converting it from an obscure, ill-cultivated swamp into a busy, lively region, multiplying its population tenfold in eighty years and causing giant cities such as Liverpool and Manchester, containing together 700,000 inhabitants, and their neighbouring towns, Bolton with 60,000, Rockdale with 75,000, Oldham with 50,000, Preston with 60,000, Ashton and Stalybridge with 40,000, and a whole list of other manufacturing towns to spring up, as if by a magic touch. The history of South Lancashire contains some of the greatest marvels of modern times, yet no one ever mentions them, and all these miracles are the product of the cotton industry. Glasgow, too, the centre for the cotton district of Scotland, for Lanarkshire and Renfrewshire, has increased in population from 30,000 to 300,000 
since the introduction of the industry the hosiery manufacture of nottingham and derby also received one fresh impulse from the lower price of yarn and a second one from an improvement of the stocking loom by means of which two stockings could be woven at once the manufacture of lace too became an important branch of industry after the invention of the lace machine in seventeen seventy seven soon after that date lindley invented the point net machine and in eighteen o nine heathcott invented the bobbinet machine in consequence of which the production of lace was greatly simplified and the demand increased proportionately in consequence of the diminished cost so that now at least two hundred thousand persons are supported by this industry its chief centres are nottingham leicester and the west of england wiltshire devonshire etc a corresponding extension has taken place in the branches dependent upon the cotton industry in dyeing bleaching and printing bleaching by the application of chlorine in place of the oxygen of the atmosphere dyeing and printing by the rapid development of chemistry and printing by a series of most brilliant mechanical inventions a yet greater advance which with the extension of these branches caused by the growth of the cotton industry raised them to a previously unknown degree of prosperity the same activity manifested itself in the manufacture of wool this had hitherto been the leading department of english industry but the quantities formerly produced are as nothing in comparison with that which is now manufactured in seventeen eighty two the whole wool crop of the preceding three years lay unused for want of workers and would have continued so to lie if the newly invented machinery had not come to its assistance and spun it the adaptation of this machinery to the spinning of wool was most successfully accomplished then began the same sudden development in the wool district which we have already seen in the cotton districts in seventeen thirty eight there were seventy five thousand pieces of woollen cloth produced in the west riding of yorkshire in eighteen seventeen there were four hundred and ninety thousand pieces and so rapid was the extension of the industry that in eighteen thirty four four hundred and fifty million more pieces were produced than in eighteen twenty five in eighteen o one one hundred and one million pounds of wool seven million pounds of it imported were worked up in eighteen thirty five one hundred and eighty million pounds were worked up of which forty two million pounds were imported the principal centre of this industry is the west riding of yorkshire where especially at bradford long english wool is converted into worsted yarns etc while in the other cities leeds halifax huddersfield etc short wool is converted into hard spun yarn and cloth then come the adjacent part of lancashire the region of rockdale where in addition to the cotton industry much flannel is produced and the west of england which supplies the finest cloths here also the growth of population is worthy of observation bradford contained in eighteen o one twenty nine thousand and in eighteen thirty one seventy seven thousand inhabitants halifax contained in eighteen o one sixty eight thousand and in eighteen thirty one one hundred and ten thousand huddersfield in eighteen o one fifteen thousand in eighteen thirty one thirty four thousand leeds in eighteen o one contained fifty three thousand in eighteen thirty one one hundred and twenty three thousand and the whole west riding in eighteen o one contained five hundred and sixty four thousand and in eighteen thirty one nine hundred and eighty thousand inhabitants a population which since eighteen thirty one must have increased at least twenty to twenty five per cent further in eighteen thirty five the spinning of wool employed in the united kingdom one thousand three hundred and thirteen mills with seventy one thousand three hundred workers 
these last being but a small portion of the multitude who are supported directly or indirectly by the manufacture of wool and excluding nearly all weavers progress in the linen trade developed later because the nature of the raw material made the application of spinning machinery very difficult attempts had been made in the last years of the last century in scotland but the frenchman girard who introduced flax spinning in eighteen ten was the first who succeeded practically and even girard's machines first attained on british soil the importance they deserved by means of improvements which they underwent in england and of their universal application in leeds dundee and belfast from this time the british linen trade rapidly extended in eighteen fourteen three thousand tons of flax were imported in eighteen thirty three nearly nineteen thousand tons of flax and three thousand four hundred tons of hemp the export of irish linen to great britain rose from thirty two million yards in eighteen hundred to fifty three million yards in eighteen twenty five of which a large part was re-exported the export of english and scotch woven linen goods rose from twenty four million yards in eighteen twenty to fifty one million yards in eighteen thirty three the number of flax spinning establishments in eighteen thirty five was three hundred and forty seven employing thirty three thousand workers of which one half were in the south of scotland more than sixty in the west riding of yorkshire leeds and its environs twenty-five in belfast ireland and the rest in dorset and lancashire weaving is carried on in the south of scotland here and there in england but principally in ireland with like success did the english turn their attention to the manufacture of silk raw material was imported from southern europe and asia ready spun and the chief labour lay in the twisting of fine threads until eighteen twenty four the heavy import duty four shillings per pound on raw material greatly retarded the development of the english silk industry while only the markets of england and the colonies were protected for it in that year the duty was reduced to one penny and the number of mills at once largely increased in a single year the number of throwing spindles rose from seven hundred and eighty thousand to one million one hundred and eighty thousand and although the commercial crisis of eighteen twenty five crippled this branch of industry for the moment yet in eighteen twenty seven more was produced than ever the mechanical skill and experience of the english having secured their twisting machinery the supremacy over the awkward devices of their competitors in eighteen thirty five the british empire possessed two hundred and sixty three twisting mills employing thirty thousand workers located chiefly in cheshire in macclesfield congleton and the surrounding districts and in manchester and somersetshire besides these there are numerous mills for working up waste from which a peculiar article known as spun silk is manufactured with which the english supply even the paris and lyons weavers the weaving of the silk so twisted and spun is carried on in paisley and elsewhere in scotland and in spitalfields london but also in manchester and elsewhere nor is the gigantic advance achieved in english manufacture since seventeen sixty restricted to the production of clothing materials the impulse once given was communicated to all branches of industrial activity and a multitude of inventions wholly unrelated to those here cited received double importance from the fact that they were made in the midst of the universal movement but as soon as the immeasurable importance of mechanical power was practically demonstrated every energy was concentrated in the effort to exploit this power in all directions and to exploit it in the interest of individual inventors and manufacturers and the demand for machinery fuel and materials called a mass of workers and a number of trades into redoubled activity 
the steam-engine first gave importance to the broad coal-fields of england the production of machinery began now for the first time and with it arose a new interest in the iron-mines which supplied raw material for it the increased consumption of wool stimulated english sheep-breeding and the growing importation of wool flax and silk called forth an extension of the british ocean-carrying trade greatest of all was the growth of production of iron the rich iron deposits of the english hills had hitherto been little developed iron had always been smelted by means of charcoal which became gradually more expensive as agriculture improved and forests were cut away the beginning of the use of coke in iron smelting had been made in the last century and in seventeen eighty a new method was invented of converting into available wrought iron coke smelted iron which up to that time had been convertible into cast iron only this process known as puddling consists in withdrawing the carbon which had mixed with the iron during the process of smelting and opened a wholly new field for the production of english iron smelting furnaces were built fifty times larger than before the process of smelting was simplified by the introduction of hot blasts and iron could thus be produced so cheaply that a multitude of objects which had before been made of stone or wood were now made of iron in seventeen eighty eight thomas paine the famous democrat built in yorkshire the first iron bridge which was followed by a great number of others so that now nearly all bridges especially for railroad traffic are built of cast iron while in london itself a bridge across the thames the southwark bridge has been built of this material iron pillars supports for machinery etc are universally used and since the introduction of gas lighting and railroads new outlets for english iron products are opened nails and screws gradually came to be made by machinery huntsman a sheffielder discovered in seventeen ninety a method for casting steel by which much labour was saved and the production of wholly new cheap goods rendered practicable and through the greater purity of the material placed at its disposal and the more perfect tools new machinery and minute division of labour the metal trade of england now first attained importance the population of birmingham grew from seventy three thousand in eighteen o one to two hundred thousand in eighteen forty four that of sheffield from forty six thousand in eighteen o one to one hundred and ten thousand in eighteen forty four and the consumption of coal in the latter city alone reached in eighteen thirty six five hundred and fifteen thousand tons in eighteen o five there were exported four thousand three hundred tons of iron products and four thousand six hundred tons of pig iron in eighteen thirty four sixteen thousand two hundred tons of iron products and one hundred and seven thousand tons of pig iron while the whole iron product reaching in seventeen forty but seventeen thousand tons had risen in eighteen thirty four to nearly seven hundred thousand tons the smelting of pig iron alone consumes yearly more than three million tons of coal and the importance which coal mining has attained in the course of the last sixty years can scarcely be conceived all the english and scotch deposits are now worked and the mines of northumberland and durham alone yield annually more than five million tons for shipping and employ from forty to fifty thousand men according to the durham chronicle there were worked in these two counties in seventeen fifty three fourteen mines in eighteen hundred forty mines in eighteen thirty six seventy six mines in eighteen forty three one hundred and thirty mines moreover all mines are now much more energetically worked than formerly a similarly increased activity was applied to the working of tin copper and lead 
and alongside of the extension of glass manufacture arose a new branch of industry in the production of pottery rendered important by the efforts of josiah wedgwood about seventeen sixty three this inventor placed the whole manufacture of stoneware on a scientific basis introduced better taste and founded the potteries of north staffordshire a district of eight english miles square which formerly a desert waste is now sown with works and dwellings and supports more than sixty thousand people into this universal whirl of activity everything was drawn agriculture made a corresponding advance not only did landed property pass as we have already seen into the hands of new owners and cultivators agriculture was effected in still another way the great holders applied capital to the improvement of the soil tore down needless fences drained manured employed better tools and applied a rotation of crops the progress of science came to their assistance also sir humphrey davy applied chemistry to agriculture with success and the development of mechanical science bestowed a multitude of advantages upon the large farmer further in consequence of the increase of population the demand for agricultural products increased in such measure that from seventeen sixty to eighteen thirty four six million eight hundred forty thousand five hundred forty acres of waste land were reclaimed and in spite of this england was transformed from a grain exporting to a grain importing country the same activity was developed in the establishment of communication from eighteen eighteen to eighteen twenty nine there were built in england and wales one thousand english miles of roadway of the width prescribed by law sixty feet and nearly all the old roads were reconstructed on the new system of madam in scotland the department of public works built since eighteen o three nearly nine hundred miles of roadway and more than one thousand bridges by which the population of the highlands was suddenly placed within reach of civilization the highlanders had hitherto been chiefly poachers and smugglers they now became farmers and handworkers and though gaelic schools were organized for the purpose of maintaining the gaelic language yet gaelic celtic customs and speech are rapidly vanishing before the approach of english civilization so too in ireland between the counties of cork limerick and kerry lay hitherto a wilderness wholly without passable roads and serving by reason of its inaccessibility as the refuge of all criminals and the chief protection of the celtic irish nationality in the south of ireland it has now been cut through by public roads and civilization has thus gained admission even to this savage region the whole british empire and especially england which sixty years ago had as bad roads as germany or france then had is now covered by a network of the finest roadways and these too like almost everything else in england are the work of private enterprise the state having done very little in this direction before seventeen fifty five england possessed almost no canals in that year a canal was built in lancashire from sankey brook to st helens and in seventeen fifty nine james brindley built the first important one the duke of bridgewater's canal from manchester and the coal mines of the district to the mouth of the mersey passing near barton by aqueduct over the river irwell from this achievement dates the canal building of england to which brindley first gave importance canals were now built and rivers made navigable in all directions in england alone there are two thousand two hundred miles of canals and one thousand eight hundred miles of navigable water in scotland the caledonian canal was cut directly across the country and in ireland several canals were built these improvements too like the railroads and the roadways are nearly all the work of private individuals and companies 
the railroads have been only recently built the first great one was opened from liverpool to manchester in eighteen thirty since which all the great cities have been connected by rail london with southampton brighton dover colchester exeter and birmingham birmingham with gloucester liverpool lancaster via newton and wigan and via manchester and bolton also with leeds via manchester and halifax and via leicester derby and sheffield leeds with hull and newcastle via york there are also many minor lines building or projected which will soon make it possible to travel from edinburgh to london in one day as it had transformed the means of communication by land so did the introduction of steam revolutionize travel by sea the first steamboat was launched in eighteen o seven in the hudson in north america the first in the british empire in eighteen eleven on the clyde since then more than six hundred have been built in england and in eighteen thirty six more than five hundred were plying to and from british ports such in brief is the history of english industrial development in the past sixty years a history which has no counterpart in the annals of humanity sixty eighty years ago england was a country like every other with small towns few and simple industries and a thin but proportionally large agricultural population to-day it is a country like no other with a capital of two and a half million inhabitants with vast manufacturing cities with an industry that supplies the world and produces almost everything by means of the most complex machinery with an industrious intelligent dense population of which two-thirds are employed in trade and commerce and composed of classes wholly different forming in fact with other customs and other needs a different nation from the england of those days the industrial revolution is of the same importance for england as the political revolution for france and the philosophical revolution for germany and the difference between england in seventeen sixty and in eighteen forty four is at least as great as that between france under the ancien regime and during the revolution of july but the mightiest result of this industrial transformation is the english proletariat we have already seen how the proletariat was called into existence by the introduction of machinery the rapid extension of manufacture demanded hands wages rose and troops of workmen migrated from the agricultural districts to the towns population multiplied enormously and nearly all the increase took place in the proletariat further ireland had entered upon an orderly development only since the beginning of the eighteenth century there too the population more than decimated by english cruelty in earlier disturbances now rapidly multiplied especially after the advance in manufacture began to draw masses of irishmen towards england thus arose the great manufacturing and commercial cities of the british empire in which at least three-fourths of the population belong to the working class while the lower middle class consists only of small shopkeepers and very very few handicraftsmen for though the rising manufacture first attained importance by transforming tools into machines workrooms into factories and consequently the toiling lower middle class into the toiling proletariat and the former large merchants into manufacturers though the lower middle class was thus early crashed out and the population reduced to the two opposing elements workers and capitalists this happened outside of the domain of manufacture proper in the province of handicraft and retail trade as well in the place of the former masters and apprentices came great capitalists and workingmen who had no prospect of rising above their class handwork was carried on after the fashion of factory work the division of labour was strictly applied 
and small employers who could not compete with great establishments were forced down into the proletariat. At the same time the destruction of the former organization of handwork and the disappearance of the lower middle class deprived the working-man of all possibility of rising into the middle class himself. Hitherto he had always had the prospect of establishing himself somewhere as master artificer, perhaps employing journeymen and apprentices, but now, when master artificers were crowded out by manufacturers, when large capital had become necessary for carrying on work independently, the working class became for the first time an integral, permanent class of the population, whereas it had formerly often been merely a transition leading to the bourgeoisie. Now he who was born to toil had no other prospect than that of remaining a toiler all his life. Now, for the first time, therefore, the proletariat was in a position to undertake an independent movement. In this way were brought together those vast masses of working-men who now fill the whole British Empire, whose social condition forces itself every day more and more upon the attention of the civilized world. The condition of the working class is the condition of the vast majority of the English people. The question, what is to become of those destitute millions who consume to-day what they earned yesterday, who have created the greatness of England by their inventions and their toil, who become with every passing day more conscious of their might, and demand with daily increasing urgency their share of the advantages of society? This, since the Reform Bill, has become the national question. All parliamentary debates of any importance may be reduced to this and though the English middle class will not as yet admit it, though they try to evade this great question, and to represent their own particular interests as the truly national ones, their action is utterly useless. With every session of Parliament the working class gains ground, the interests of the middle class diminish in importance, and in spite of the fact that the middle class is the chief, in fact the only power in Parliament, the last session of 1844 was a continuous debate upon subjects affecting the working class, the Poor Relief Bill, the Factory Act, the Masters and Servants Act, and Thomas Duncombe, the representative of the workingmen in the House of Commons, was the great man of the session, while the liberal middle class with its motion for repealing the Corn Laws, and the radical middle class with its resolution for refusing the taxes, played pitiable roles. Even the debates about Ireland were at bottom debates about the Irish proletariat, and the means of coming to its assistance. It is high time, too, for the English middle class to make some concessions to the working men who no longer plead but threaten, for in a short time it may be too late. In spite of all this, the English middle class, especially the manufacturing class, which is enriched directly by means of the poverty of the workers, persists in ignoring this poverty. This class, feeling itself the mighty representative class of the nation, is ashamed to lay the sore spot of England bare before the eyes of the world will not confess even to itself that the workers are in distress, because it, the property-holding manufacturing class, must bear the moral responsibility for this distress. Hence the scornful smile which intelligent Englishmen, and they the middle class alone are known on the continent, assume when anyone begins to speak of the condition of the working class, hence the utter ignorance on the part of the whole middle class of everything which concerns the workers, hence the ridiculous blunders which men of this class, in and out of Parliament, make when the position of the proletariat comes under discussion. Hence the absurd freedom from anxiety with which the middle class dwells upon a soil that is honeycombed and may any day collapse, the speedy collapse of which is as certain as a mathematical or mechanical demonstration. 
hence the miracle that the english have as yet no single book upon the condition of their workers although they have been examining and mending the old state of things no one knows how many years hence also the deep wrath of the whole working-class from glasgow to london against the rich by whom they are systematically plundered and mercilessly left to their fate a wrath which before too long a time goes by a time almost within the power of man to predict must break out into a revolution in comparison with which the french revolution and the year seventeen ninety four will prove to have been child's play End of introduction.